Blog Talk Radio. Who are the unstoppable ones? Is it just that they can do it and I can't? Who are the unstoppable ones? Is it just that they can do it and I can't? Mission Unstoppable. Mission Unstoppable. The unstoppable ones. You did say unstoppable, right? Yeah. You did say unstoppable, right? What is it they know that I don't? Coach Frankie Picasso takes you on the Mission Unstoppable. Can anyone stop these people? I don't know, but good evening. I am the Unstoppable Coach Frankie Picasso, and tonight we are going to go on another unstoppable journey with another unstoppable guest. In fact, we are going to hunt for miracles. Not the kind that just happened to some people, but the kind that are waiting for everyone to receive. Now, you may be thinking that you have never seen one. It's not like they just grow on trees, but guess again. In the land of optimism, they do. That's right, the land of optimism can be also be called the land where opportunity awaits and abounds. To get there, you may have to experience some changes along the way, but don't worry, you'll be safe. My guest is an expert guide. In fact, you can find his way there with his eyes closed. Through years of travel, he would take us past the weeds and underbrush along his personal time-worn path, a path he calls hope. And for our trouble, if you stick it out, he'll lead us directly to the place where miracles grow on trees. So stay tuned, stay close. We will be back to meet this fascinating man in just a moment. It is Tuesday, July the 8th. The time is 8 in Toronto, 5 in Los Angeles. And to my good friends across the big pond who are night owls, the time is 1 a.m., I'd like to thank the good folks here at Blog Talk Radio for allowing me to broadcast over their network, and I'd like to thank you, you know who you are, for tuning in each and every week and giving me your love and support. Thank you so much. By all rights, Kevin Tuey shouldn't be the success story that he is. Growing up in a household with nine brothers and sisters, Kevin's father had gone through 50 jobs and three years of total unemployment. In fact, by the time he was in grade five, he had already attended six grammar schools and lived in eight different homes. At the age of eight, Kevin's mother did the unthinkable. She sent her firstborn son to do a man's job. She sent him to search for food, beg for food, anything to feed a starving family of 11. Given these less than auspicious beginnings, no one would blame him if he didn't amount to much. Growing up in abject poverty with a father who fists on him three times that words couldn't. Kevin was somewhere, if Kevin was someone else, he would have ended up as another has been ex-Irish jock sitting on a bar still with a never-ending bottle of Guinness in his shaky hand recounting back in the day when he was something to behold. But unlike that caricature he could have been, he transformed himself from an underdog into a winner, a real live personal and public success story. Kevin joins the ranks of the other unstoppables before him as a man fueled by hope, optimism, and miracles, and he has been sharing his own brand of magic with students, athletes, coaches, educators, and high-level administrators for over 30 years. He's been highly successful collegiate athletic director, basketball coach, and student life director at a number of colleges. And for the past 14 years, he has continued to change lives as a certified life coach. He not only has the credentials to teach you a few things, but more importantly, he is his own success story. And tonight you will hear about his uphill battle to survive and not only how he became a highly respected educator and inspiration of thousands, but how you too can overcome any odds to succeed. Please welcome the author of Miracle of Optimism, Mr. Kevin Tuey. Good evening and welcome to Mission Unstoppable, Kevin. Good evening. Thank you very much for having me. It's certainly a pleasure. It's a miracle. Uh, it is a miracle. <laughs> and for those of you um, <laughs> who want to talk to us, you can give us a call at 646-595-3741. I do have the chat room open. If you want to join us in there, that would be great. We would love to talk to you. Kevin, congratulations on your book. It's, uh, it's a great book, I have to tell you. Um, I, I think I read on, on one of your promo sheets that it contains 17 stories of your life, 18 lessons, and 15 exercises. But i got to tell you, um, the backdrop for these lessons, you didn't pull any punches. I cried and laughed my way through your book, and um, I want to thank you for the honesty that, that was there. And, I, you know, I think that honesty is a little bit underrated. Um, but, you know, if the folks can look inside and really see what's there inside themselves and be honest, then they have the recipe for change. Don't you think? Yes, uh, absolutely, and I think that um, you know I had that book in my heart for a long time, and I uh, took a risk with it because I do have uh, eight living siblings, so there's nine of us, um, and of course my mom is still living, so you know um, 
my mom was a little worried about the book coming out because some of the stories are pretty graphic. Uh, but I try to, to tell the truth about the whole story because very often when people grow up like I grew up, they stay stuck in the story. And uh, my story was pretty graphic. I mean, I think, um, you know, anybody read it. But I like what you said, laugh, cry, because that's what life is, and that, that's what life was for me. So what I, what I did was I included parts um, that were real for me and the truth about my father and my, my relationship, the part of it that also was showing love and the, uh, the inspiration he was to me in some ways, uh, how close I was to him. And, um, and that doesn't make beatings right. It doesn't make uh, starving right, moving right, unemployment, however, whether you want to say right or healthy. But one doesn't exclude the other. And I think that that's where people who are not bumping into miracles and not having life flow their way don't, don't really tell the whole story. What a great way to put it, Frankie. They, they just don't attach themselves, and this included uh, some of my siblings, uh, attach themselves to the truth of there were a heck of a lot of good times. There were a heck of a lot of lessons that we learned from my father and from my mother. The other part is that I, I wouldn't trade my life with anybody's life um, because I couldn't be who I am today. I couldn't be uh, teach the lessons that I teach with the understanding that I have about overcoming obstacles um, and not from a place of arrogance, from a place of absolute humility and grace. And um, was I a sad little boy at times? Yes. Do I still probably suffer some scars? Yes, anybody who has been physically or emotionally abused does. But you need to look at the whole truth, and that's why I wanted to write the book, because um, I wanted, and, and it's been a healing book in my family. It's really um, been a very interesting healing mechanism for my family. I think it's, it's amazing how close you and your siblings are. Yeah, someone said that to me. I'm sorry. It could, no, yeah, it could have gone the other way. You know, you could have all hated each other for, for you know, you being alive and I'm hungry because of it. But you did, <laughs> and they together. Well, yes. You know, I, even in my own family, my kids, you know, at, din- at the dinner table, they act like they're in prison. You know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we don't like to do this to our own. We don't like to do this to our own children. But yeah, very often, if they complain about something that's uh, being presented, I, you know, kind of just throw in there very gently. You know, I don't want you guys to suffer and not eat, but I gotta let you know, coming from starving, um, you got a gourmet meal in front of you. You know. I know. It's like, you know, we're hungry. We'll have cereal. Well, I, I, don't, I don't want that. Well, then you're not hungry enough because if you're starving, you eat it. And you probably know that lesson all too true. Well, you know, I think one of the, one of the words I don't hear in your book, but it, 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 to me the theme runs totally throughout it, is, is that of responsibility. Because responsibility is, is one of the key actions, I think, that, that is a part of the framework for living a healthy life. And, and for really that, that, you know, forgiveness that you talk about. Yes. You have to, I think you need to take responsibility for, for your life and not be a victim. Like, you, you're, you're not living in victim mentality. You know, you say, this is how it is. Yeah, but you're taking responsibility, you know, for, for what happened. You're part in it. You yes. Take responsibility for what your dad did to you. That's his part to take. But, you know, you are right. what you, you are and what you went through. Yes, and I think more, I think what happens when you become an adult, if you really want to, if you really want to forgive everybody everything, what, what I did, what I, when I really got it, is you're exactly right, um, Frankie. When I really got it is when I started looking at my own actions, some of the things, not as a kid, but as an adult, when I started seeing what I was justifying 15 years, you know, as a workaholic, as a college basketball coach, you know, not, you know, um, just working day and night, and if I treated people poorly or if I acted poorly, uh, because I did have behaviors, I call them default behaviors, that manifested as a result of how I grew up. And when I stopped using them as an excuse and started taking the responsibility as an adult, I got it about forgiveness. And what I mean by that is I said to myself, hold it, wait a minute. I'm using my story to strike out at this person or to be mean at this person or blow that person off or climb up the coaching ladder without regard to others. Oh, wait a minute. So my father must have had a history and my mother must have had a history that perhaps they were justifying to, like for instance for my father, justifying his anger towards us children or me or whoever and, you know, and you start investigating his story and seeing he was abandoned in Ireland by his father. His father beat him. 
His father left him. Uh, he didn't. My mom and dad found my grandfather when he when my father was already married in his twenties, and luckily they healed that, and I was able to have a relation with my grandfather. But what I what I got was hold it. If I forgive myself for this, if I apologize to the people I've hurt, wait a minute, hold on. That my father just didn't quite ever get to the point until his deathbed. And if you read the last parts of the book about you know his deathbed, he did get it at the end. He finally got it, like at the end, like it's never too late. But that self-responsibility for my own actions really helped me not blame. It, it, it just removed the blame, and it helped me forgive my father. And I hope that all made sense because it certainly did to me. Yeah, but it, it, yeah, it did. <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> Good. Well, and you know, if, if this was quantum radio, I would say, well, you chose those parents, you chose your parents because there was a mission that you came here to do. And if you want to, you know, take the metaphysical, spiritual out of that, then we can just say that the lessons um, that that you learned as a child, you know, are, are we've already said are what make you are what you are today. But you could have been something else. And yes. And even what you are, you still could have, you know, snubbed your nose and said, well, you know, I went through it. Look what I went through. Why can't you do it? It's That's right. Like everybody is their own person. You take no yes. responsibility for their life. And Frankie, I do believe I chose. You know, my mother, my mother's 87, and about and about five years ago, at the age of 82, she's sitting on my back porch, and she said, you know, I want to apologize for, you know, putting you in charge of your brothers. I have five younger brothers. Um, when you, you really just should have been a kid. She went through this whole apology, and I said, Mom, if you need to do that for you, great. And I, I know it comes from love, but you know I chose you guys, and I do believe that, Frankie. So I said, you know, this is, you know, this is the kind of the pact I made with my higher power. I was coming in, and to do this work, and um, and so uh, I'm doing it. And and so thank you, but I love you. You did the best you could, and I do do believe I chose my family. Yeah, and your mom did do the best she could. I mean, here's this woman with what nine children and and my gosh i mean probably one right after the other yeah over 15 years she had 10 and yeah you know and and had to deal with you know another child which was her husband really yes his moodiness and and keep him from you and keep him from her and you know keep everybody happy so that was a big job that she had you know she really was kind of a classic um well, you mentioned you mentioned uh, Cinderella Man. Yes. In in your book, yeah, it kind of did remind me of that. Yeah, you know, and I went to see it with her, which I think was beautiful. Yeah, and, and I said that to her when she did. I said, "Mom, you chose your work, and I tell you, you've done it brilliantly. I don't, you know, I don't think you're going to have to do this again, Mom. You came in, and you had ten children, nine who were living. You had a beautiful daughter die. I don't know how you how you survived that." Um, especially her being an infant when she died, and um, God bless, Mom. You've you've done you know you've been a warrior, you know. Yeah, yeah, and and dying alone that must have been just heartbreaking for your mother. Yes. You know, that your baby sister, you know, was by herself. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't know that until I started writing the book. I didn't realize my. I didn't know that, and yeah, it. Boy, and you know, the other thing, Frankie, I wanted to say is. It broke my heart thinking about my father because, it's, you know, this is hard to – I hope people who read the book kind of get this, but, you know, it's hard to imagine sometimes when you read some of the stories about my father. But, you know, in, in many ways he was um, – I, I if you knew him, I just can't even imagine him. The way he felt about us – so I'll give you an example. We were all together this weekend all my siblings, some of my cousins, my cousin Joe, who's in the book, my hero Joe. And we were talking about, like, my father, how loyal and protective he was of all us. So so no matter what, he may, you know, he couldn't protect us from himself, but I'll tell you what, you better not be an outside force and bother us because he was very loyal, protective, and incredi- loved us incredibly. And that that is, that's a fact. That's the way it is. I can feel it sitting here talking to you. I can't even imagine him holding my sister. I mean, I know this man. I know his soul. I always knew his soul, and that's why I could sit there with him. My siblings used to be amazed. How could you keep going back to this guy? Because I knew his soul, even in the madness, and I can't even imagine him holding my sister. I just, I can't even imagine it. Yeah. Very painful for both of them. You can't blame your dad. Your dad did the best that he could with what he had. Yes. That was, you know, that's it. And, And that was his lesson to learn. 
Yes. And my sisters went back to his birthplace in Ireland, and it was really cool. They just said they could just feel him as a little boy there. You know, they could just feel him in this innocence, you know. I really, I really felt for you because, you know, I remember um, forgiving my mother uh, before she passed away and thinking, you know, the last couple of years that she was alive, just thinking, you know, you really did the best you could. And, and yeah. obviously you couldn't have done whatever because you would have done it. And yes. she was really much better with the grandchildren than she was, you know, with us. And, and so, um, you know, I guess there was something there. Yes. So responsibility is, is a key message. Um, one of the – you say in your book, change change your perspective and transform your life. Perspective as a, as a life coach is our greatest tool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, I, I was working for the government here, and my job was to change the perspective, really, of – of the 60,000 public servants that worked for, for us, and <laughs> no money but change their perspective, and that is something <laughs> that you can do for free, really. Yeah. You know, I tell people, and, and you know this for yourself, that um, when you look, when you fall in love, let's say, the whole world just becomes this beautiful, rosy, lovely place. Yeah. And when you break up or have a fight with your girlfriend, boyfriend, the whole world becomes this, this horrible, ugly place. And it's the same person, same day, just a different perspective on the day. And so we can create those feelings or not, um, and, and so we talk about choosing to live the life that you want instead of, you know, living in default. And I think yes. that's what your book is about. Yes, and, and part of it in the book I give some lessons, some uh, tools that I – see, what you just described is also – a, a physiological response. So, you know, you really can't separate mind, body, and spirit. And so what I try to do in the book is give uh, – I do work in the energy field. I'm a, I do psychophysiology, meaning, you know, the, the physical response to emotion. And what happens is you're releasing DHEA and oxytocin and endorphins into your system when you're falling in love. And when the fight happens and the breakup happens, you're releasing cortisol. So you're – Exactly right. Another way to manage and to be responsible, self-responsibility, is to stop your feeling states and so that you can change your perspective. You know, it's a physiological phenomenon when DHEA, you know, cascades up into your brain or oxytocin. You know, it's just a proven physiological fact that the third part of your brain opens up. That's where real perspective, that's where emotional intelligence, that's where decision-making is stored. And so, you actually can change your perspective, uh, both mind, body, and spirit. And, um, you know, those things that you described, it's no mistake that you feel those way, that way because it is also a physiological response. Well, one of the things I tell people is when you're feeling crappy, take the responsibility to stop it. You know, breathe into your heart. Feel something in your heart that may not even be connected. Um, and that's when miracles start happening. And miracles... You know, is that you just start noticing, and you can't notice from anger. You can't notice from negativity. You can't be in awe from disappointment. You can't be in awe from frustration. So, you know, we all have a responsibility to say, wait a minute, is, is this situation, is this condition worth giving up my happiness? Is this condition, like the bank account not being what you wanted, or your love life not being what you, what you wanted, or... The perspective of your youth, in my case, is it worth costing your happiness? And if the answer to that is no, then each of us has the ability to change our perspective, and I call it in real time. Because if you bite, see what most people do, Frankie, is they try to go back and heal it all. They try to go back and work on it, in, in quotes. I'm going to work on this. I'm going to work on it. And the real trick is to stay in real time, manage your feelings as they're happening, transform them as they're happening. And it's amazing then when you look back on the past how that perspective has changed. And so I, I like to have people when, in my coaching practice or when I'm giving speeches or writing a book, it's about in real time transforming negatives to positives in real time and using your body to do that and using your emotions to do that and the spirit. So I call on the spirit to help me with my emotions and my physiology helps me by releasing the right kind of hormones. And then when you can look at these, let, let's say you're frustrated over your bank account and you manage that, meaning that you move past it and you, you feel, okay, actually I am abundant, I'm grateful for what I do have, doesn't matter if there's all zeros in there. And if you learn to change that, like every day you're working, every, not working on it, every day you're making that transformation, 
you don't have to work so much on the past. It really kind of clears it up. So when I got working on the present, then this past life of mine, this childhood of mine, that's why I could write the book, is the more I stayed in the present, although I cried many times writing the book, it wasn't nearly as painful uh, because I had changed my perspective. I, I had just changed the way I look at things. And, you know, staying in awe about about little things that happen. You know, miracles don't have, miracles don't, as you know, they don't know any size. So miracles are miracles, you know. And um, Well, I think what you just described, though, is, is the, the modality of coaching. Because, you know, coaching is about action and moving forward. It's not really about going backwards. Right. That's therapy. Yes. So that's, you know, and that's what I love about it because it can be so fast. Like, you know, in a nanosecond you can change your whole life. It's just a perspective change. Like yes. that. You know, you take you take the the, um, the significance away from the event. And and now you can look back and say, Yeah, okay, that's what happened, but you know what? I'm gonna move forward and, and be better because of Yes. That. Yes. Mindset, right? That's exactly right. And mindset and, and, and bringing your heart into it, you know? Yeah. Like, like, how about storing up the good? You know, store up the good as, as it's happening. You know, we need to train. We have a whole society, you and I, that we can help train to do that. Well, I like to look at things and say, okay, what would love do now? Yeah. And, and it, for me, it's a really powerful question because I can look at any situation and go, what would love do now? And not what would Frankie do, but what would love do in this situation? And then I can, I can look at it from that perspective and say, okay, this is what would do yeah and it just is a much softer gentler you know response sure does change it yes oh really yes so I, you know I'm, I'm sure that people are, are going okay kevin um i can say i forgive you but i'm not really feeling it so how do we know that we have forgiven somebody okay well i think that you practice with intellectual forgiveness i think you know you need it starts with a decision so and your mind isn't as powerful as your heart so eventually you can bring your heart into it. But uh, I think it starts with an in- intellectual decision of, you know what, not forgiving is really causing me a lot of pain here. You know, I'm angry, but the other person doesn't seem to be feeling it. So, you know what, I'm going to be selfish here and make a decision to change. But I think sometimes it, um, it does take maybe a little bit of time to, to bring that down about five inches into the heart and really feel it. So one way to to check it out is if it's just intellectual forgiveness, which I started with with my dad, and then move it down. You don't have any angst. There's no physical, you know, people just pay attention to their body. They'll know if they forget, gave or not. In other words, you know, if you still feel rumblings in your stomach when you think about the situation or tightness in your chest or it solicits some sort of anger, you're, but you did make the decision to forgive, you, you know it's intellectual forgiveness and you need to be gentle with yourself. Um, and to me, once again, it's bringing physiological things in and then just breathing into some sort of acceptance of the person that um, they did the best that they could, whatever it is you're trying to forgive. And, and when your body no longer acts out or you, or you don't have a default negative emotion around the situation, the person, or the condition, you'll pretty much know that you're at peace. It just doesn't give you a charge anymore. That forgiveness is, is not... For the other person, it's for you. That's right. Yeah, you know, you've heard it said, you know, you're drinking the poison and hoping somebody else is going to die because it, it really is for you. That's correct. Yeah, that's what I'm saying about being selfish. So be selfish about it. If this situation is causing me this, is it worth it? And why? And do I really want to feel like this? So you do the forgiveness. And I don't mean selfish in a negative way for some motivation. That I mean, there's some things that seem unforgivable. I think people get mixed up with condoning or making something right. I don't use this word a lot, right or wrong, but either condoning or let's just say um, I had a client recently. Um, I don't really have many individual clients anymore. Actually, I don't have any now, but I volunteered this because one of my clients in one of the groups that I run was killed in a car accident. And the girl who caused the accident or was the driver is still alive and this family lost their son. Well, they came to see me after reading the book about forgiveness. And where their confusion is, is she made a pretty crucial mistake. Um, 
Okay, so no, you don't want to drive like that. It's not condoning reckless driving. But you're in a lot of pain because there's a lot of hate for her. There's a lot of quotes in the paper that I see, like she gets to live her life, she goes to the prom, she goes to the college, my son's dead. And so it seems unforgivable, but I tried to express to them that anything can be forgiven. And if they feel, and as hard as this is, if they feel forgiveness and compassion deep, it's not condoning reckless driving. And they're trying to get some sort of movement around the law. I said, you could even continue with that law for teens if, if this particular thing she did, she tried to pass and she shouldn't have, blah, blah, blah. That, you could actually do that without all the anger and all the pain that you have around how much you hate this girl. And you could actually go after that law, you know, if you could find a place to forgive. And you're right, it's about yourself because really they are hurting not only the loss of their son, but all this stuff that, that unforgiveness brings. Yeah, it is awful. You know, there's, I have a similar um, client who, who was hit by a bus on a highway, and, you know, she lives her life in great pain. And, and I, I said to her, I said, do you think that the bus driver woke up that morning and said, I'm going to hit you? Right. You know, and she said, well, no. I said, then why are you so angry with her? because an accident is an accident. And as much as we can just go an accident is an accident, you know, she never got that until that very moment. She goes, oh, my gosh, it was an accident. Yeah. And it wasn't intentional. And, you know, maybe I shouldn't be hating and being so angry all the time. And, you know, my own personal story is, is you know, I can relate to, to this couple. Because, I mean, nobody died, but, you know, my life was greatly changed by an accident. A guy hit me, and I'm going, yeah, well, they could go walk around and have their life, and I get to be in pain all the time. But you can't be like that. You can't think like that. And so, you know, you have to change that perspective. I think, you know what, I am alive. And I can yeah. do things and I'm making, you know, a difference in this world and that's why I'm here. And and forget about him. I mean, he's, he's probably hurting because he's hurt somebody. Who knows what's going on in his head? I don't know. I haven't spoken to him. It doesn't matter. It's right. Amazing. And, you know, we talk about being selfish. And selfish is not a bad word. Right. And we need to look after ourselves. Nobody else is going to look after us. We need to do it for ourselves. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, Frankie, one of the things I wanted to get in here is, like, let me see. When, when, you, when you understand awe and when you believe in miracles, what happens, why your perspective around this all changes is that, is, is that your actual whole mood, your whole being, your whole spirit changes so that it allows you to – since we're on forgiveness, it allows you to forgive, not because you worked on forgiving people, because you change your perspective by just being in awe of life. And I'd like to give you an example of what I mean. I spent the day on the New Jersey shore here, the New Jersey beach. I live um, about 35 minutes from the beach, 35 minutes from Philadelphia. It's a perfect place to live. If you love city life, I go over there. But I was with a young man who I hadn't seen up until last month. I hadn't seen him for 21 years. He played college basketball for me at the University of Pennsylvania. How I connected with him again, and this is, I wanted to get this in about miracles and being in awe, is that um, I was hired by Keene University here in New Jersey to do work with three of their teams. And I'm 56 years old, and they have a couple young coaches there, and they were so fascinated that I would have given up this you know, I'm a Hall of Fame college basketball coach that I would have given up this career. It's seemingly at the peak of, um, of my career at the age of 38. They were very fascinated with this. And there were two of them in one room, and there was a woman coach, Coach Sharp, the woman's basketball coach, who I worked for also. So the story might be a little long, but I think it's worth telling. So they're asking me about the highlights. And I just happened to mention Bruce Lefkowitz, this young man who I saw today. He's not young anymore. He's in his 40s. And I hear from the other office, you, oh, you coach Bruce at Penn? And long story short, his wife knows her. One day later, I'm talking to him on the phone. I hadn't seen him in 21 years. He wrote me a letter when he was a senior in college about what I meant to his life. And if he ever made it big and he could help me, he'd love to and blah, blah, blah. And so now I connect with Bruce. Well, he's the vice president of advertising with Fox News Network. 
and I end up down across the street from Radio City Music Hall in New York talking to him about doing some work at Fox. And then I'm on the beach with him today. He's got six children. He had a quadruplets and twins. He's got six children. Yes. The point of all of that is most human beings, and this is a key word I've been using a lot lately, this phrase, I guess, step over those situations. And this is what I mean by feeling states, Frankie. They, people, do not sit in the feeling states of how awesome that was. Like I paid attention to the miracle of me being in that conversation, of Coach Sharp hearing me, of her saying Bruce, me saying where is he, he's moved up the ladder, blah, 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 his wife was my assistant coach at Manhattan, to the next phone call, to me being on floor 31 in the Fox building in New York, to me sitting on the beach today with him, and he surprised me uh, with the athletic trainer who I used to room with on the road when we played our games. Those things are all miracles. It's, it, most people might say, oh, it's a coincidence, or isn't this nice? But I want to tell you, the way I've changed my perspective about everything is to take the quiet and the stillness of my mind on the drive home, which was about, 35, about 40 minutes, and sit in the great feeling of the, of the awe of that circumstance and how special it is and what a little miracle it is. And when you move all this anger out of the way, when you move the frustration out of the way, I have a million stories like that. I mean, honestly... And guess what else happened to me recently? I mean, really, within the last five years is, is I'm in awe of the way my career, you know, like, like I never paid attention to any of that, how quickly I moved up the ranks in coaching and all this great stuff. It's all stuff I'm awed over. And then some more miracles come my way. I meet more people. I'm on this radio show with you. I don't step over that. To me, I don't, to, to me it's very special. And I'm not talking about corny or goofy. I'm talking about, wow, this is pretty cool. Someone else reached out, and I'm on this person's radio show that I really respect, and that's cool. We don't spend enough time in those good feeling states. And so forgiveness and, and uh, all this other stuff we're talking about, from the, from the feeling state and perspective of optimism and joy, are just much easier to handle. Yeah. You know, I'm not surprised that you heard it from this guy because that does happen to me a lot. And, you know, you can talk about the law of attraction. You can talk about, um, you know, being connected. I think that we are kind of all connected in yes. the world consciousness kind of way. And and I just used to, to think, oh, as soon as I think about somebody, they're going to call me. And it's like, oh, you know, you, some people will say, well, your ears were burning. Some people will, will call it something else. But it really just is a, a connection on a higher level. And, yes. And, you know. They got it, and you got it, and, you know, you put it out there. And, you know, if people want to test it, you know, go go home or tomorrow when you go to work, think about purple cars. Just think purple cars, purple cars. The color purple, and then all day long you're just going to see purple everywhere. It's yes. Just, you know, attracted to you. And it's exactly that kind of thing. And so we can attract good and we can attract bad, but we can only hold one perspective at a time, positive or negative. So what is it that you want to hold today? Right. Yep. And that's, you know, that, that's how we need to, to, to choose. People go, how do you choose your thoughts? Well, that's how you choose your thought, isn't it? You yes. choose to have an amazing life. You're choosing to, to have this great experience. And you chose it when you chose to forgive, I think. I believe you're right. Not to be a victim. Yes. Yes. You know, it's funny, along those lines this morning, I haven't looked at this album, really, this morning, I... Um, pulled out this album and two days ago I had wondered about this this person who I grew up with Steve Strasovich but I looked at some pictures of us playing football together when we were in our 20s I haven't seen Steve since 87 1987 I think it was and um, he sent an email to my management company saying I saw Kevin's book I'm a dear old friend could you please have him call me so you know I had like you just said about the color purple I had just um, had him in my consciousness for the last two or three days yeah, I love when that happens. Yes, me too. <laughs> yeah, so cool. So, I mean, there's a miracle, really. And people say, yes. what, you know, what is a miracle? What is a miracle? What are we talking about? Miracles don't grow in trees. What are we talking about? What, what, what's such a miracle about it? Well, the miracle is that you just have to think it into your existence. And it's yes. There. That is a miracle. 
Well, you know, the definition is something that seems unexplainable. So that, you know, that, I mean, it does, so it just seems unexplainable. It's very explainable, but it just seems so. So people get all, you know, with the word miracle, you know, we've all been trained that it's got to be something so huge. And sometimes it is huge. I mean, the house I'm sitting in was a huge miracle that happened. But, um, you know, people get confused with that. It's merely, it doesn't look like it's explainable. And, um, you know, and usually attributed to a god or a higher power or whatever. And, um, you know, so, but it's hard to pay attention to those from all those negative feeling states that we were talking about earlier. It's hard to, it's hard to recognize a miracle, you know, it could be, could be sitting right in front of you, you know, like the old, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, like the old joke, the old thing, you know, there was this flood and, you know, this, this man was sitting on his porch and a boat come by and, you know, he said, no, you know, hop in. No, God's going to take care of me. I believe strongly in God. I believe in miracles. Boat goes off, gets up on the second floor, a bigger ship comes by. Come on, you better hop in. No, God's going to take care of me, not recognizing the miracle right in front of him. And he gets to the roof, helicopter comes, you better hop in. Nope, God's going to take take care of me, man drowns, dies, goes to heaven, a metaphorical heaven or whatever, and says, hey, why didn't you save me? He goes, well, I sent you two boats and a helicopter. Yeah, didn't right. recognize. <laughs> yeah, they didn't recognize the miracle in front of them, which is really kind of a great, it's a really good story. I like that one. Sent three of them. <laughs> it takes action. You know, you can't, and that's a key word. Yes. You know, you yeah. need to be act on your own behalf. God, you know, God, whatever you want to call it, the world, the universe is going to put these opportunities, these miracles in front of you. But you have to, you have to take the action to grab them. Yes, know? that's right. <laughs> yeah, because he manifested, manifested the three chances. He just, you know, couldn't recognize them because there was other weird perspective of of what a miracle is. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, I love it. I just love it. It's so cool. Well, you know, the um, I forget what I was going to say to you before when I did your interview. <laughs> before, the, before the story. Uh, what was it? Oh, shoot. I can't remember. I'm sure it was good, though. <laughs> I'm sure it was, too. I'm sure it was, too. Yeah. Well, let me see. Where do we go from here? Your, um, your children. Mm-hmm. How do you... How, I, I, do you, do you treat your children differently, do you think, than, than you were, uh, well, definitely been, well, maybe not treated by your mother, but do you see them in a different light than you see your siblings? Like, how, how do you treat them? Like, how do you... Well, first of all, they're, you know, they're both medical miracles. Um, Serena, it took us seven years to conceive her, um, and she was full-term baby, but she was born at... Um, emergency c-section struggled to get into the world and she was only four pounds ten ounces she came home at four pounds six ounces full term my wife's umbilical cord had not progressed and they didn't pick that up so she's just a miracle upon birth and then um ava was one of we didn't know that uh she had been conceived and there was actually twins and we lost one of the twins but annabelle thought it was her monthly cycle and was going to get an x-ray because she thought she had an ulcer and just decided one day, right before the doctor's office for the x-ray, went out and got a pregnancy test. Said, I'm going to go get a pregnancy test. And she was pregnant. So luckily we didn't do the x-ray. And then so that was a miracle. Um, yes, um, I, they're, um, they're very, very um, gifted children spiritually. Um, they uh, have a great concept of um, the universe. They love the earth. Um, I, I, you know, of course I would never hit them, but there is, you know, we do, you know, there is discipline in the home. There is expectations, uh, I should say, but we don't do timeouts. Like when we do timeouts, we usually, I'll usually bring them right where I'm sitting into my office and we'll, they'll draw, um, what their anger is or whatever it is they're feeling. I'll teach, I, I've taught them, I've taught them how to breathe. I, I'm a, I'm trained from the Heart Math Institute in California. I think I probably have six certificates from them. It's a very fascinating science, and I'll teach them how to go to their heart and kind of neutralize their feelings. Um, I coach them. What did you say? What, what was the name? What was the course? And what did you? What was it? Was the heart? It's the Heart Math Institute. It's in Boulder Creek, California, and it's psychophysiology is what it really is. It's ma- It's learning how to manage your body. It's learning how to use your heart rhythms and, and self-generate your heart so that you can release the kind of hormones that I was talking 
um, talking to you about earlier. And so I'll do that with them, um, which is a physiological approach once again to the um, to the energy. I mean the emotional uh, management. But uh, you know, here's what I believe about. I, you know that because I've already said it on this show that you know they chose us, so they chose to come in here, and they're doing their work, and they're doing their work, and they're teaching me, and they're teaching my wife things, and we're trying to teach them things. Um, we um, we know they're on their own spiritual journey, so we try not to get too much into the drama of their life. In other words. If something, we'll get a lot of calls from parents. Well, do you know that Serena did this at school today? And we said, well, we'll talk to her about it. However, you know, we really truly believe that your daughter or your son really needs to work it out with Serena. They might say, oh, she was bossy or she, you know, not. we don't allow her to like to say nasty things. And she really wouldn't. She, but, um, you know, she's bossy or she's this. What's that? Crystal child. You heard the term indigo and crystal. Yeah, I, I think that she's. Crystal, maybe crystal, you know. Yeah. yeah. Not sure about indigo, but I do. Yeah, see, they're they're powerful spirits. I mean, like uh, our next door neighbor's wife died. She was 85. Like everybody was appalled in the whole place, the funeral hall, when the two of them, age eight and five, go up. Oh, Lil, you know, there's Lil's body, and like an adult try to pull her away. And, and my my five year old turned to this person and said, you know, Lil's spirit is up in the tree next door. This is just her casing. You know, she's five. <laughs> yeah. You know? And we so we try not to get in the way of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, in a way, I had a lot of very spiritual connections that I had no idea what they were when I was young, and they got squashed. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not going to do that to them. Do, now, do they have lots of cousins? Like, you, you grew up in a big family. They do, but, you know, here's the deal, Frankie. I didn't have my first child until I was 49 years old. So all their cousins are in their 20s and 30s. <laughs> I'm the oldest boy. What's that? But it was in the book. I'm going to bring it up because it was in the book. But when you got married to Alice, she was supposedly pregnant. Did she lose it? or? Um, no, no, no. That No, my father thought she was. Oh, okay. <laughs> my father was all upset because because he was asking, why are you getting married at this age? And he was right. Um, why are you getting married at this age? And she's got to be pregnant. And I thought that was ironic because we never had any children. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and well, it took it. Because, you know, he's probably saying, look at my life. I got, you know, ten kids or whatever. Like, I don't want that for you. You hit it right on the head. It was total fear. You know, and that's how my father showed like, like, it's really funny. I'm in the middle of that scene with him. And, I, and on some level, I knew that this was all, he was just so afraid I was going to ruin my life yeah. by doing this. You know, so his only way many times was to strike out <coughs> in anger. Okay, and so that's, that's a really great segue. That's a good point then. Okay, so Kevin, your dad used his fist, he used, you know, to cover his fear. What... It's a great question. I, I just want to be very vulnerable and upfront. For many years, and not with any loved ones, I used my fists too. I was a very, you know, it's really funny. I was this highly professional college basketball coach for so many years, and um, I was a guy who was in bar fights and. Um, you know, I learned what my father learned, what my father taught me about that, and that was when you have a problem, you know, you straighten it out with your fists. And uh, so very, very often that's exactly, you know, what I did. And um, so my default behavior and my most predominant, um, my most predominant default ne negative emotion was anger. So I would default to, to anger. Um, so... Today, that's still very accessible to me. Um, mm -hmm. I still, I still know, although it's way, it's nine thousand degrees less. I would say still my most predominant uh, negative emotion. There's two of them: worry, because that was my mother. I picked that up from her, so I kind of hardwired worry, and then anger. 
So, but, but, but what I do today with it is I dissipate it, you know. I, I change my perspective when something makes me angry. And I, and I do really, really realize that it's a, that's a useless emotion, as is worry. I think worry is worse. You know, I mean, sometimes I worry over things. Not, not really much anymore, but since you asked the question, I, I do want to answer it. Um, I have to shift it in real time, and that's what I mean. I used to go back and say, like, let's just say I had one of these fights or I was worried about something 20 years ago. So that's basically when I got on my journey, about 1987. Um, I would go back and say, see that son of a gun, if he didn't raise me this way or if we weren't poor, I wouldn't be worried about money or blah, blah. Well, today, if it comes up, if the checkbook looks like it's less than what the bills are and I feel worry, the key is to check it in real time. The key is for me to stop what I'm doing, and I'll tell you this is exactly what I do. I put the pen down, and all those things that I tell you that I store up, like let's just say the one today the, with, with Bruce, meeting him, seeing him on the beach, blah, blah, blah. I bring that to my heart. I just sit, and I breathe in it, and I feel it, and it does it. And then I can, boy, that's silly to be worried about that. Or if I have a fight with Annabelle or I'm angry at one of my kids or angry at a school district, uh, you know, school districts sometimes take them, uh, you know, forever like to pay you or every time a budget, uh, this is a good one, every time a budget gets cut, I work with a lot of at-risk kids in school, out goes Kevin's program. So I have a choice in real time to stay angry about that, which serves me no purpose. I've gotten very good at being selfish. I don't like feeling crappy. And once you, cr- there's this like critical time where you kind of cross over. If you practice with diligence, intentional appreciation, and there's a chapter in the book and actually an exercise and lesson in the book, intentional appreciation, like on-purpose appreciation, and practice it regularly, you get addicted to feeling good, just like you get addicted to feeling crappy. And you get real rooted in the fact of, hey, I don't want to feel like this because it really doesn't feel good. But it has to be done. What's that? important things there. The first thing that you said is you you know you need to, you need to know that you feel what you're feeling. So you need to check in with your body. And yes. people need to learn not to be numb. They need to know that their body is this big processor that will tell them all sorts of things, right? Yes. And the second thing you said is is you know to have this feeling. And I tell people too, you know what? I'm not really good at behavioral things. I can't come up real quick with a you know with what did I do you know five years ago, but. If you have that really happy memory in your back pocket, so when you need it, you can pull it forward. So always have that, you know, that one. You got it. I can tell you're a really yeah. good life coach. You're a really good life coach because you hit that right on the head. <laughs> See that? I mean, that, you, you just, you know, you took that, summarized it, wrapped it up in a nice bow, and you hit it right on the head. So you must be, you know, your clients are lucky to have you. Well, thank you for that. But, you know, I mean, it's not, it's, it's not science or anything. It's just, you know, it just is, is what it is. And I think we all come to this when we get to this place in, 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 place in this time. And so the thing that I was, I remember what I was going to talk to you about really quickly, and that was um, one thing I usually ask people is, is, is your optimism, your positive nature innate or was it learned? Well, obviously in your case, I doubt it was learned behavior because you came from a very dysfunctional, um, angry kind of place. But you, you managed to have this hope, and maybe your dad even had the hope because he stuck around. You know, maybe he oh, yeah. the next job, the next job, or the next whatever. Things are going to get better. Yeah, he did. I think it's a great question. Here's the answer. To me, we just have to remember that we were born absolutely with optimism. We so to me, it just was a remembering, and so we were born with this optimism. There is nothing going to stop us now and then life is put on top of that piece by piece and i because you know honestly that even though it seems like it there was always a flicker my brothers will say that to me you know you always had this something so maybe i, I say to them i might have might have just remembered a little bit more because you guys came in with that too and i said i think i had a, here's what it was frankie i had an unwillingness to completely let go of it so what i mean by that is this I daydreamed a lot, and, and, and I show my daughters the windowsill in my mother's house because she still lives there where I rested my head, 
And I, as I look at it today, all I was doing was really remembering I was born with optimism. So, so I came into the world with it. I used to put my head down and I would just daydream about what my life was going to be like. Like, like tomorrow he's going to get a job and keep it. Friday we're going to eat. I'm going to be a college basketball coach. And like, like as you know, I was just manifesting and using the law of attraction. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And that was a ritual, and that's prayer to me. You know, I was in Catholic school at the time and had all this stuff being rammed down my throat. But to me, that those were my prayers. And so I just had a propensity to remember it a little bit more because even at that age, I had a ritual. You know, and I talk about rituals in the book. I had a ritual to keep me centered so I wouldn't go crazy living in this seemingly mad mad situation you know and you know i gotta tell you there's something my and it caused some jealousy with um with some of my siblings not anymore my father knew i had something that he knew it was something special he couldn't put his finger on it i had no clue what it was but he saw the sparkle he saw this optimism you know it's almost like he would say to, I, I could just see him like going man i can't beat this kid enough where he's still not coming back and sitting next to me and talking to me. And I first went into therapy, people were saying to me, you went back to the abuser. And I, I was saying to them, well, maybe some people do, do that, but I saw the purity of my father's soul, and I was just going back to talk to my father. So you can call it what you want, Mr. Therapist or Mrs. Therapist. I, and I honor you, but I'm saying that and he saw that. He, he gave me a look that he didn't give my other siblings. He, he had a twinkle in his eye when he saw me. He was close to me. And... Um, yeah, so optimism, we're all born with it. We're all born with the ability to recognize miracles, and then we just put a bunch of stuff on top of it. So we just got to remember it, Frankie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, there's Ernie Vecchio's in the, in the chat room. I don't know if you know Ernie or not. He, he, his show's called True Kindness, and he's another ex-jock uh, psychologist who, uh, who uh, you know, has learned some, some very important lessons. But he, he likes to work with these at-risk kids, too, and and I think when I was listening to you talk about um, the kids today, you had an incredible propensity for imagination. You really could live inside your head. And today, the kids are just, you know, they have an intravenous to, to television and, and, and yes. video games and all sorts of things. And, and they don't imagine things. They don't have this ability really to, to get out of themselves um, yes. by themselves. They, they need to be, you know, spoon-fed to do that. So do you think that this is where possibly um, this now generation, like Ernie was talking about these kids that, you know, 81 million of them or something, teens that everybody's afraid of, um, is it, do you think, because you're working with them too, is this what's going on? Do you think that there's something you do? Yeah, yeah, there's a couple things. Um, I don't, probably it's a whole other show, but number one, they have too much, too, too, here's the deal. Like I was, uh, I want to get this story in. So they, I was giving a speech to a group of, med, of uh, educators. And they asked me, well, what would my typical day look like at school? And I said, okay, well, first period would be dreaming, daydreaming 101. And they looked at me. They thought a joke was coming. And I said, you know, we've structured everything else in these kids' lives, and we really have it. There's, a, there's an adult problem as much as there is a kid problem. They're coached too young. They've got, they, they got drama coaches. They've got, you know, all their time is structured. We have free-range chickens, but we have no free-range kids. They're not out doing but somehow we're going to blame them. Well, you know, my kids don't have a computer in their room. They don't have a TV in their room. We schedule what we're going to watch. They have imagination time. So anyway, first period would be that, then two academic classes. And then third period would be a kindness class. We would, we would talk about kindness. And then I went through this whole curriculum, and then I got into breathing exercises. And I, ha I had all the academic classes in there. They could still do all the academic classes, but I said, you know, as long as we're going to structure these kids to death so they got no imagination, I said, we better structure this into school then. Well, you know, by the end, it's interesting. Some of them were paying attention, but, you know, I was studying with Alan Cohen last week. He's an author. He's written The Dragon Doesn't Live Here Anymore, Ease Into Wealth. You had it all the time, uh, Handle With Prayer. And I was with him for a week in Oregon, and, you know, and, and um, you know, he said to me, he said, Kevin, you know, you work with at-risk kids, but here you are talking about the wonderment of kids' hearts. That's because you work with enthusiasm. You have a different perspective of them, and, um, and you believe in miracles. So you end up with these kids, even if they're in trouble, that you can see the purity of their soul. You know, the, I think, you know, in, in a huge way, uh, the only problem we have with this group of people is adults being afraid to be in charge, being, being afraid to let kids feel disappointment. 
you know, we've, we, we, we've managed their feelings. You know, when our kids, and this, you asked me about my children, that's in this, when, they're, when they can't get something, when something doesn't work out, I want them to sit in their disappointment. I want them to feel that. I'm not going to remedy that for the band. So adults are doing this in the whole athletic field. My next book is called Competing with Compassion, Rediscovering the Lost Spirit of Sport. We have totally overscheduled kids in the athletic arena and overcoached them. So it's not the kid. to me, it's not the kids. We've trained them to be this stuff. I believe that. To play too. We're afraid of the boogeyman. We're afraid that something bad is going to happen to them, so they can't just go out and run around wild like we did. Yes. Bernie made a great point here. He said that um, angry people are spiritual people who have who have an angst to make the best out of a bad situation. I like that. Hmm. Yes. Afraid of being angry, and they pass it on. And yes. True. And that's why I tell people, you know, to 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 look at their story, to look at their fear and say, who is it? Who does this belong to? Maybe it doesn't even belong to you. Maybe it belongs to your parents and you just, you know, thought it was yours. Yes. Have to it, your way back. That's right. You're you're very but you're right. You are so right though in that that you know, we 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 don't allow people to have feelings. We're so afraid of of fear and resentment and anger and all these things. We're afraid of those negative emotions that we don't allow people to to work their way through them so they learn how to handle those. That's right. You know, what I tell my children is you don't want to stay in it for long, but use it at, you know, like, like Serena will have, she has so much energy, she'll have these meltdowns. And they're ugly to other people. You know, we're used to it. And I know it's just an energy release. And, I'll, you know, afterwards, you know, we'll just ask her, how did that feel versus, say, when you were running in a sprinkler today? And all you're doing is, you know, I'm planting the seeds or for her to remember that it feels better to be optimistic. It feels better to run through the sprinkler than it does but we can't protect them from all that. She's got to make that choice that this feels better than that feels. But, you know, my daughter will go, I'm going to snap. If you do that, I'll snap. And I go, well, snap. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh, not mine. Yeah, go have fun <laughs> snapping, dear. <laughs> yeah, go have fun snapping. You know? Well, how old, are your, how old are your children? My youngest are 20. They're twins, a boy and a girl. Oh, okay. He's 22. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, Mike, mine should be that age. It's just that you know, I got it backwards. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm just a little bit younger than you. <laughs> yeah. I get a lot of. Sometimes I'm out with the kids, and some, and, and it's not an insult to me. Everybody's mortified, but they'll say, "Oh, is it Grandfather's Day or something?" You know, and they're. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. yeah and well, I say my, to them. My son had a friend like that. Yeah. 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 So hey. You know, God bless. I'm glad I didn't miss out on being a dad. Oh gosh, yeah, absolutely. And you know, I'm I'm sure your daughters absolutely adore you. Sure. They do. <laughs> they absolutely do. Kennedy clan, you know. Yes, that's right. I a big picture of all these kids, and um, so what? So on the horizon, then you've got the new book coming. Yes, I'm I'm uh, writing right now. Um, that book. Um, also working on a proposal for my first book, uh, although it was released and you know has done quite well. It's, it was self-published, and I would like to see if I can um, you know get a publisher to pick it up. And so I'm writing a proposal right now. Yeah, so a lot on the rise, and I'm changing my business. I'm moving away from education a little bit and um, starting doing some work. I think the corporate world can use some help. I think that uh, there's now some there's a little bit more listening into that you know. We can't stay all left brain on this stuff, and so I've done some recent workshops in some pretty big industries, and I think I think that's probably where. What I'd like to do, Frankie, is is um, move into that arena. They, you know, not embarrassed to say this, make a little bit more money that way, and then keep writing. I, I, that's what I really would like to do. My business right now is like seventy percent on the education side, thirty percent in the business, and. My management company would like to see that reversed, and, I, and I'm ready for that too. 32 years I've been between coaching basketball and doing this, working with kids, and uh, not that I haven't had adult work in there too, but I'm ready for I'm ready for the shift. You. I have to stop you for one second because we're at the last 54 seconds. So this is Kevin Antui. He is the author of the uh, Miracle of Optimism. What's your website? It's themiracleoptimism.com, and the book is available on Amazon. Good, we got that in. Now you can finish. <laughs> yeah, well, I was. I think I, I think I was 
I think I was. Yes, that's where I'm moving. I was just, you know, just saying that that's where that's where I'm headed. So yes, yeah, it's. it's um, thank you very much, and I, I really appreciate you having me on. And um, yeah, Amazon.com, the miracle of my. I'm sorry. I want to have you on again. I want to have you on again. You're a great guest, and and I, you know, we got so much more to talk about. Well, good. Let's do it. Yeah, and you know, Ernie, I think he's going to call you too because he says you guys have a lot in common. So I think good, and and he's got my contact information. He does. He's got a show on Blog Talk as well. So oh, anyway, let me write thank it. You so much. Time is up here. It goes so quickly when you're having a great time, doesn't it? Yes, it does, and I did have a great time. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye, All right, Frankie. Here we are in the day, uh, night or day. Um, you know I love you, and we'll be back here next Tuesday night on Mission Unstoppable. Take care. Bye bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.